who will be talking to us. Um, not only will he preach us, but then he'll be sharing to us what his, the denomination we're looking at to go into believes and experiences. I pray, Lord, that you'll anoint him and that, Lord, you'll give wisdom of our congregation to discern what is right and good for us and for our walk with you, Christ, and our desire to be with you. I ask you, Christ, too, for uh, the Reformed Church that will be leaving, Lord. I pray that, you know, the 20% plus that are leaving the denomination will say something to the denomination. And that they'll think about where they're heading and what they're doing. We thank you, Lord, that there are denominations that still want to have the word supremely put. And so, Lord, we thank you, Lord. There are other options that we have right now. But we want the best, Lord, that we can be motivated and activated and staying on the truth of your word, Lord. That's what our desire for this church is. And so, God, we just pray that um, this will be a good leading for us. We pray also, too, Lord, for those in our midst that are going through difficult times and suffering. I want to pray especially for Marcy, who had surgery this week. We just pray for her healing. I pray also, too, for Daryl, who's recovering from his quadruple bypass surgery. We pray for Lucille. We pray for Kay. I pray also, too, for um, our, our good Evelyn, that you'll be with her, Lord, and her mind is struggling. I pray also too, Father God, for Joyce and their family and the struggles they are going through right now and the sadness in their heart. I pray also too, Lord, for those that we know that are addicted to drugs and alcohol. We continue to lift them up and we love them for Ryan and John. Uh, Lord, we pray also for Dave, Eric, Ricky, Mitch, all these who are battling the monkey on their back. Pray also for Dan. I pray also, too, Father God, for Dr. Bott, who's battling cancer right now, and also for little Samantha, who's got those brain tumors on her brain, and they're trying uh, just to help her right now. But I pray, Lord, for a, a miraculous healing on her brain, and that you'll bring it about. And Father, for other situations in our lives, we lift them up to you right now. I pray for uh, Mike and Leanne, who uh, lost her mother this past week, Lord, and that you'll just be with them and bring comfort and strength to them. I pray also, too, Father, for uh, the Arnold family, who I interned uh, the ashes yesterday for the loss that they've experienced in their family. Lord, be with those who are broken in their hearts, Jesus. Now hear our prayers as we lift up a name, Lord, you know somebody maybe needs Christ. Maybe they need a healing. Maybe they need something in their life. Hear our prayers as we lift them up by name or situations. Now also too, Lord, I pray for the safety for everybody traveling this weekend for Father's Day. Everybody have a safe and fun time and sharing the joys that we have. In your name we pray, Christ. Amen. War is something that is something that we're all used to hearing about. We hear it on our TVs. I remember when I was growing up and the Vietnam War was going on and the black and white and all the continued numbers of those that we lost in the war over there in Vietnam. And for centuries we've always had that. There's wars that are done because they're necessary. 
World War II, World War I. We also know about the Ukraine right now we're seeing and listening to. And James asked a question that's very difficult for centuries. Why do we have wars? Why are there conflicts? And what we have here also, too, is some of the wars that are just so foolish. I was reading about wars that have happened in the past, like in 1925, when 20,000 Greek and 40,000 Bulgarians got into a huge battle. It was over a soldier, a Greek soldier, who had lost his dog and was chasing it. And the Bulgarians thought they were being attacked, and the war broke out, and thousands were killed. There's also another war over a bucket back in 1325, and where 2,000 were killed in that battle. Well, there are wars, too, that are necessary. And James speaks to us today about war. He says to us, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have, and you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Now James is a pretty level-headed guy. We've talked about where he's taken us so far. If you remember, we had the situation where people are being tri in trials and difficulties and being persecuted, and he talked about using their faith. How sometimes we're tempted and how we need to use our faith. And he also said verification of faith is our actions that we do. We just not only talk about it, but we live it and we take action upon that faith. That our mouths are also to be quiet more often and to listen more intently, especially at the word of God. And that our communication should be. But James here now deals with situations in churches where they fight. We've seen it before. We've seen it in families. Abraham, had an, his people had an argument with Lot over the land. In the church, the Corinthians, they were battling because one was saying Apollos was important and Peter was important, Cephas was more important, and they were playing the celebrity game with the apostles. We see it also too in Galatians where people were arguing about whether or not how much law should they follow and whether the grace should be followed. And the Judaizers were in the midst of all that. So wars and arguments and, and disagreements come. And they come, he says, because of desires. Because of stuff that's worn inside of us. James talks about that in his own book. He talks about the class war. If you remember in chapter 1, he talked about how people were getting favorite seats in the churches because they were celebrities. And they were kicking out the poor. And James said that should never be. James also talks about employment in chapter 5. And he also talks about wage fights in chapter 1 and chapter 3. But today, James really is talking about the struggles that we go through with one another. Struggles that we go through in the church and in our families. And even wars. Like Putin, who thinking that that area of Ukraine is still Russia's and he wants to claim it back to Russia. And that the people who want to keep it free don't want that. And so out of his own desire... 
he wants to take it back. And today, we see here how easy it is to get caught up into those moments. One of the things that's so important is that we know the facts of why we are fighting. Know our motives. James is speaking about that today, about covetousness, wanting something that somebody else has. And that's why we murder sometimes. That's why we lust causes that. Sometimes our desires are so full within ourselves that we don't. And so he begins with desire. He says to us, those material things that we want, we are willing to do whatever we need to do sometime because we want pleasure. Now there's nothing wrong with pleasure in the Bible. We should appreciate and be thankful for what we have and enjoy what we have. But what James is hitting on is that once that desire gets in us and we want more than we have and we're not appreciative of God, then what we want to do is take more for ourselves. Committing adultery with her. Well, what do you think swapping was? You don't think that was adultery? And then you're complaining because he's leaving her, leaving you for her? That's the darkness of the world, folks, that we live in today. And because her desire was being fulfilled to a certain extent, but once it went further than that, she was complaining and angry about it. You see, the Bible here speaks to us. Your desires can easily put you into a mode of pleasure that can destroy us. It can bring us down. It's the same thing what it says then. It says we want power. And so we're willing to murder and covet. And what it's saying here to Putin, here he is. He has the power to take over this little piece of land and he's striving to do it because his desire and his covetousness, and his wanting it back, and wanting to be in control. And so there are wars in his heart. But we also know there's war in our hearts. Miriam and Aaron complained about Moses. 
And God punished them because they were trying to usurp the power that Moses had. All kinds of things come. You have it at work situations. Where some people try to move you out by talking behind your back. Or you're tempted to talk behind somebody's back and talk about their bad the way they work. So that you can move in or somebody else can move in. This is all comes from within. It creates battles in the workplace. And this is what James is saying it happens in the church. We've seen it time and time again in the church. Where the Judaizers were in Galatians. Speaking against Paul and his doctrine. And they were trying to move him out and bring back the law. You see the Bible here speaks to us very plainly. It says you war and fight. And yet you do not have because you did not ask. Now here's a thing that he really hits us with as Christians. Sometimes we ask for things that we shouldn't really ask for. Number one, they're not in the will of God. Sometimes we don't ask because we know what God's answer will be. And what would be wrong? It would be self-centered, egotistical. And so James here comes to us. And yet, it's amazing how we see preaching today the danger, it was a study done about preachers of the largest churches in America. And one of the things was to feed that desires in people for pleasure and to feeling good about themselves and not talking about sin. In fact, James, later on, he talks about sin very boldly. And the emphasis is on how to improve yourselves. This survey came out to say. And it talks about how it's almost like you're, it's a pragmatic session that you could go to, to a positive thinking seminar and get rather than to hear what the true word of God has to say. And it's dangerous because it feeds the very thing that we're supposed to be fighting against, which is our own selfish will. They made a study in New York about phone calls. And they found that people on an average phone call of just three minutes, people would talk I, I, I about themselves quite a bit. They also studied elevators. They found that people had a great opportunity when they were in an elevator, especially with fellow workers, to complain about their job and complain about stuff that was going on. But when they put mirrors into the elevators, people didn't complain. They found that they could look at themselves and they were quite content and they were happy to see and look at themselves. And that's why when you go to elevators, remember that there's a mirror in there for a certain reason to give people to think about themselves rather than the disagreements they're having at work or the, how unnice un, un it is at work and that they can look at themselves and have a great time. Tell me we're not hooked on I. It's amazing. We hear it from philosophers. is to know yourself. Psychologists talk about expressing yourself. Now, these are important things, folks. But as you notice, they're all centered around I. And the Bible here speaks to us. It says the real grind of why wars happen, why people fight, why marriages get into struggles... 
Number one reason they get into struggle is over finances because I want to spend it on what I want to and that person wants to spend it on what they want to. In fact, they say one of the biggest problems in the marriage is the first two and a half years, if a person doesn't decide who's in control of that relationship, it'll battle the most of the years of their marriage. The Bible here speaks to us and says to us, where do the wars come from? Where do fights come from? From among us. Do you come with the desire for pleasure? I want to... In that marriage that will put up with the narcissist, you will find them in a divorce court, not too much, or a person who is basically abused that they don't question ever. That's the grind. That's the war. That's the problem. And then James comes to us and says, and what fuels all this? What gets this really going? He says, is we don't ask and you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. So our asking is off. We're not asking in the will of God. That you may spend it on your pleasures. Then James hits us hard. Hits his congregation hard. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy. James is talking about this relationship that we have that's like a marriage. And we ask and we don't receive because you see, we know our stuff is off already. So we don't ask because we know God will not answer it because we know it's wrong to ask. I was reading about a little boy who was having trouble with sucking his fingers and he was getting older now and he had to get rid of the sucking of fingers and one day with his dad, he says, his dad said, well, why don't you pray and ask God to help you stop sucking your fingers? All right. He prays and ask God to take away his, he said, wait a minute, I still don't want to stop sucking my fingers. He said, I'm not going to ask God that one. He was honest. You see, this is the danger that our pleasure, our desires to grab hold. And what happens is, notice what God calls us then, adulterers and adulteresses. Because what we do then is we put our self-desire and our pleasure ahead of God. Francis Schaeffer, who was a great cultural understander, he said in, in his words, he says, the problem is that when we continue to be unfaithful to him, we find ourselves degenerating in our spirituality. Now we live in a culture that is striving, and this is why the Paul wrote about it, John wrote about it, and here James writes about it. We know the three dangers to our lives. 
We know that the flesh is a problem inside of our hearts. We also know that the devil, in fact, we'll talk about him in a minute. And we know that the world, and James talks about the world. You know, we sit there today and we ask ourselves, what is going on in our culture? How come everything is going to the boards? Why is it that when I grew up, things have changed so differently and the Judeo-Christian heritage has been thrown out the window? Why are children today less likely to be moral than we are? Why is that all happening? It is because, you see, that we had these social engineers who entered into our government and at Yale University, a group of them got together in a think tank. And they said, how can we change this Judeo-Christian heritage, this basically puritanical look of sex and diversity and all this stuff? And how can we change it? And especially as they were considering the homosexual agenda. And so they got together and they built a game plan. And the game plan went like this. Put it out there in the media. And let people see it in movies. And start becoming comfortable with it. And then put it in educational material. Just kind of slide it in. So that the kids get informed about it as an alternate lifestyle. Then, those who oppose it, call them names, demonize them. Whether standing against abortion or homosexuality or, or trans or any of this. And, and make them the bad guys. And then, put on people who give testimony to what a great life they have. They had an actress on the other day and she claimed that she's a pan. And I'm saying pan. She's in everything. She's a pansexuality. Whatever person she's with, it's, it's gone. That's what the world... And you see, then it comes to acceptance in the culture. And if you look at our culture... That's the way they worked it. And it worked out as a great plan. And we are behind the ape wall fighting this right now. You see, because God's Judeo-Christian heritage is being fought. And the Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit to help us. Because I've even seen Christians flounder in doubt, as it says here in the scriptures today. And fall in line and God says, when we have friendship with the world, we're his enemy. We're at enmity with God. And when we have this eneminess with God, we are in difficult straits. Now, I know there are people on, I, I heard a woman the other day claiming that she didn't believe in God and she doesn't think any of these issues, the Bible should have anything to say about it because it's an old book and I don't care what you believe out of your book. I know it's good for me and that's all I need. I don't need God. This is what she was saying. That's the attitude of the world. 
And it happens to people when their pleasures and desires grab onto them. You see some friends who used to thought that maybe you knew that were close or went to church with or, or in your neighborhood were on the same wavelength as you and they're not there anymore because they bought into that. They become enemies with God. And James says the Spirit of God is jealous for their souls. The Holy Spirit is jealous. You know, people get confused and say, how can God be a jealous God? He's right to be a jealous God. Because when somebody circumvents love for him, for something that is so beneath him, he becomes jealous for us. We find ourselves giving into things that are lesser. There's nothing greater than God. And when people give lesser, the Bible says God gets jealous. When we sin and we say, I need this God and it's sinful and we buy into it, we are settling for something less. I love it in the book that was written by John Piper about confessions of a hedonist. And hedonism is something that you seek for pleasure to be satisfied yourself fully. And he wrote this book called Confessions of a Christian Hedonist. Because he says, and he's right. People who give after their pleasure. They're only given for something secondary, less than God. And they're settling for something so far below. And they're not really seeking the best for their pleasure because God is the ultimate source of our pleasure. And if we give ourselves something, he uses this beautiful illustration. He says it's like a little kid in the ghetto and they're playing in the water that's in dirt and it's stagnant and it's got all kinds of fleas and bugs on it. And a man comes, a friend of his comes and says, my dad and I are going to the beach. Do you want to go to the beach with us? No, I'd rather stay here and play. He says, that's what mankind does. We settle for something so less than what we could so have a good time at the beach in the sand that we're missing the pleasure of God. And this is what it happened with this friendship with the world. We become adulterous and we sell ourselves out to something so much less. And what we do when we do that is we throw up our fist at God and says, get out of my way. I know what's better for me. I met a guy not too long ago who's done this. His life is tragic. But he says, this is the only way I know to go. It's sad because he's settling for so much less than what he could be. And he could be using all that wisdom that he's trying to use on people to con and get his booze and all that other stuff than to have a wonderful life in Christ. And James comes to us and says to us, the spirit yearns jealously for us. When we give ourselves to something less like that. But then there's hope. Hope for the world. Hope for us. And he says it comes in grace. The gift of grace. The Bible says he gives more grace. There it says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. to gloom humble yourselves in the sight of God and he will lift you up now James says a lot in this and what he's saying here you know we love singing that beautiful hymn amazing grace from the slave trader that was turned by God and gave his heart to Christ and was saved marvelous such a wretch he was taking the babies from their mothers as they were sucking for milk and threw them up against the side of this ship and would kill them. What a horrendous man he was. But it was the grace of Jesus Christ that entered his heart and saved him and he became a preacher. But then he doesn't stop about the grace that saved the wretch. In the next couple of verses, he says, it's when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the stars, I know less grace than to sing his praise than when we first begun. And it's that grace, he says, then in his next verse, that saved us. And then he goes on to say, and that grace will lead us on. Grace doesn't stop at our salvation. In that hymn, he's got the point. That grace begins when... Stop, it continues on throughout all our life. And that's what James is saying. You need God's grace every day. And you need to humble yourself and trust that grace. Because what happens is, if we don't trust the grace of Christ to save us and pull us through, then we're resist the proud. But he gives grace to change and do things to the humble. One of the problems Peter had, we know, Peter struggled with his pride. Jesus, I'm not going to let you die and I'll defend you until I die myself. And we see how well that worked out. When Jesus said to him, Peter, I'm going to allow Satan to sift you. Why? Because God wanted to break Peter of this, I am my own man. I will win the fight. I will do whatever. His pride was standing in the way of true salvation with Christ. And instead his pride was boasting that he would defend God. <laughs> and he crumbled. And you see he needed to be broken. Of his pridefulness. So that he could humbly receive. From God. What he needed to carry him through the struggles of every
sold me out. And that was the moment of revelation to Peter, who had been avoiding Jesus for the last two times that Jesus showed himself to the disciples. And finally at that lakefront, Christ comes to him and confronts him. And at that point, he says, you're right, Lord. And then he says, but Peter, that was for your good. Because now you don't trust yourself anymore. You trust me. And I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to carry you to places that you never want to be. In situations that you'll never be able to handle by your own. But I will give you the grace to handle that. And I'll give you the strength. And then he goes through. He says, once you humble yourself, number one, he says, therefore, conclusion, folks, submit to God. Everything we do, we're submit to God. And we're to resist the devil. Now what we're to do is submit is that everything God says in his word, we submit to. We want to do God's will. We know it's the best thing for us. And that's the submission. Whatever he calls me to do, I'm going to do. But then he says, resist the devil. 46% of born again believers believe there's a devil. 54% don't. And here James is saying, you got to get this one right because the devil's at work. His minions are working. And we need to resist his temptations to draw us into situations. And that we need to push him away. And we need to flee from his activity. And we do that by submitting to God. Then he goes on to the third thing. He says then, draw near to God. A.W. Tozer says, this is a, a total awareness of God in the presence of your life. So that as you walk through life, you sense his presence with you. And you're so near. You're so near to him. That you feel and sense his presence. And you, the closer you get to him, the more and more you sense what he wants. One of the reasons why Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. They were in wonderful communion with Christ up until they sinned. And then once they sinned, notice what they did. They covered themselves up. They hid themselves. They didn't want to meet God. And what he's saying here is as you draw near to him, the closer he gets, the more comfortable you feel, the more understanding of him you get, the more precious he is to you. And it gives you the strength as you go along. Then he says, when you draw near to him, he doesn't push you off. He says, he draws near to you. And he gets closer to you. And the more and more you allow him in, the more precious your heart becomes. And he says, don't let anything stand in the way. So then he says, cleanse your hands. Now, is he talking about not getting any germs? <laughs> what he's saying here is that your hands are the very things that do a lot of the sinful acts in our lives. And he's saying, what you need to do is daily cleanse those hands. Because we live in that world and we easily can get our hands tarnished and do things that the world does and that are sinful. Notice he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. We're still sinners. 
And so we need to continue to go before the Lord and confess our sins. And that purify your hearts, you double-minded. What he's saying here is that, you see, the sin that we get every day and the sins that we do, if we don't cleanse them up, they begin to work on us. And instead of having purified hearts and thoughts in our minds, we begin to let sin enter in again. And it begins to confuse us. And then we have double-mindedness. See, Satan's an author of confusion. What do you think he's doing to the kids today that are seeing this stuff going on in their schools? It's confusing them. And that's why he calls us back. It confuses us. Especially when we watch TV and we see all these things. And yes, we may get disgusted about it. But it's still working its way and trying to get into our lives. It is trying to tempt us. And then he goes on to say something that's really interesting. He says, you've got to view sin like God does. That it's so heinous we do against God. He said we need to lament, we need to mourn, we need to weep about it. You know, when we sometimes send out cards, and people send cards to us when we have a loved one die, they quote Matthew chapter 5, where it says, Blessed are those who mourn. And it's a very comforting phrase, but you know what? That's been taken out of context. Jesus, when he quoted that, when Jesus said those words, he was talking about our spiritual lives, not about death. And they are comforting words to people who are struggling. But that's not what it really means. When Jesus gave it, he says, the blessed person is the person who mourns over their sin and what they've done against God. David, when he finally confesses his sin, what does he say? God, forgive me for what I did to Bathsheba. Lord, forget what I, forgive what I, I did to Uriah. I killed her husband. He doesn't say that. He says, Lord, against you only did I sin. Why does he say that? He says, because the very first thing when we sin, it may hit those other people. But the first thing we do is we offend God. And that we should be sorrowful to God for what we've done. And he says to us, we should have a, a sense of such sadness in our hearts. Because we offended the God who loved us and died for us and gave himself for us. Look at how he even says it. He made try to make it so clear. He says, let our laughter be turned into mourning and our joy into gloom. And then when we go to Christ for forgiveness, that's when we humble ourselves. And in the sight of God, and he lifts us up. See, our, our sins should be so much that we want to confess it and we want to get rid of it because we've hurt God and, 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 and that we're willing to make amends for it. Zacchaeus. Remember that wonderful little carol you say, a wee little man, and we, he hung up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see? 
And boy, when Jesus went by and he said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house. The Pharisee blew fuses. Because they were religious. How could he go with this traitor, this sinful tax collector, who worked for the Roman government and was one of us, but is a traitor? And not only does he collect their taxes, but then he puts on percentages that we can't even afford half the time for his taxes so that he could fill his pockets. How could Jesus be that way to that guy? It's because of the grace. And Zacchaeus humbles himself and sees the error of his sin. And what does he say? Well, I'm good to go now? No. He says, half of what I've earned, I'm going to give it to the poor, Jesus. And those who I've cheated, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. Not just what I stole from them, but I'm going to pay them back four times. Because you see, he saw his sin and his need to repent and that his sin was against God. And he showed his repentance. And what a wonderful thing. Look what James then says to us in verse 10. When we humble ourselves before God like that. And we trust him in all that we do. When we come to him and we basically give in to his grace. Resist the devil. And that we commit ourselves to him. And the Bible says here he'll lift us up. All those burdens come off our shoulders. And he gives us the power and the strength to live this new life. That we can live it in a way that's never been lived before in our own lives. As we humble ourselves. In the sight of our God. Let's pray together. Lord we thank you for such precious promises. And what hope it gives to us. That when we finally get on our knees before you. And we lay it all out for you. And we submit to you. And draw near to you. That you lift us up. Stronger than we've ever had be before. Oh God, you're so awesome. Help us not to be afraid of you. But be appreciative and draw near to you. And that we can sense your presence every day. And it's in your name, Christ, we pray this. Amen. Let's stand and receive the benediction. And let's sing our closing song. And now go in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God your Father, and the power of the Holy Spirit lift you every day. Amen. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. He has done great things. He's, he's done great things. He has done great things. 
bless his holy name.